Welcome to another episode of Unheard Voices. This is Andrew Minear, and once again, I'm joined by my good friend, Jessica Tate from Oklahoma. Say hi, Jesse. Hi, Andrew. It's nice to talk to you again. Yes, yes, it's nice to talk to you again as well. It's been a long time since we did a podcast episode, and we've touched bases a couple times here and there, but I believe when we recorded our last episode, you had protest quit your teaching job and had started working at a bar or something <laughs> or something is probably a better way to put it well i, I bar or restaurant I, I couldn't remember exactly which it was neither really it was a pool hall that also sold beer and had food oh that's right which i mean you know one of the things i'm happy about is that i have enough diverse skill sets to whenever mm. the shit hits the van I can always make some money so I'm yeah, really food service I, is always an option yeah you know I worked as a chef for a long time and I've worked as a cook before I'm happy mm. to do it again worked as a bartender before happy to do it again it's yep. funny I remember distinctly hearing our principals say to another teacher I wonder what would happen if you didn't need this job See, that's the mindset that they operate on in right. this late-stage capitalism model. Hey, if, right. uh, if you're ungrateful at having this job, good luck you know, finding another job or doing something else in the economy. I think what it is is that people have a misguided opinion about vocational occupations. And mm. by vocational occupations, what I mean are things like teacher, doctor, firefighter, cop. They have it in their mind. Other mind. kinds of skilled labor as well, you know, auto mechanics and... Not so much. I'm thinking more of like like a public good, a public good. Okay. Something right. that is paid for with taxpayer funds that's meant to be like altruistic. Read socialist. <laughs> they think that people just like are those things. Yeah. They think that like you are a teacher or you mm. are a doctor and that you can't do anything else. And you're obligated to continue to do that that work for the public good, yeah. And that that is what you will do in some capacity. And mm. what's interesting to me is the conversation that I have with people when I tell them that I've stopped working in that capacity. And they express a regret as though something has been lost. And I want to say no other career field is looked at that way. If yeah. you want to attract people to a career field, there are things that you can do to do that. But Careers that are viewed as a public service or as a public good are somehow inherently assumed to be altruistic. Mm. Which, that you're just doing it out of the kindness of your heart right. and not to like make a living. Right. Absolutely. And if you go back to the root of education, you'll see that that was one of the few jobs that was socially acceptable for unmarried women to even have. Yeah, And they came along with morality codes, etc. But the understanding yeah. never was that you would support yourself on those wages. The wages of a school marm were that of a, you know, a young a woman subsistence level. prior to her marriage who yeah. would then go on and be married and then her husband would support her and then she would still continue to teach school because she loved the children and brought yeah. in a little pin money. The maternal instincts right. of childcare, yeah. It was yeah. never incentivized as other careers have been incentivized. Mm. Yeah. Well, and in many ways, it's continuously disincentivized with the constant budget cuts for educational funding in America. And 
Not only that, but a lot of the policies that were being implemented there in Oklahoma City that you were talking about with the state governor and these education quote-unquote reforms that were going on that just it was just making life difficult for you know the teachers who were committed and were passionate about teaching it made all those individuals second guess their choice at their career field it became a rumpelstiltskin situation and Mm. that is probably the best metaphor that i could come up with and i taught ap english um right rumpelstiltskin could spin a finite amount of straw into gold but the increasing demands mean that even Mm. miracles can't be possible yeah and a passionate teacher can work a miracle even with limited resources But Mm. they can't continue to work that same miracle on a larger scale with no resources. Exactly. And that's the issue is the constant reduction in the resources available. I mean, I've... And the increase in demand. Yeah. And, you know, I've I've chatted with you. I'm, I'm still in relatively regular contact with one or two of my high school teachers. And even in Michigan, you know, it's the same issues are cropping up again and again. You know, a lack of support a lack of resources, and uh, policy disincentives that make teachers just struggle to continue to work in that field and force them to consider abandoning it because they just can't make their ends meet. So did you see the recent article? I just uh, came across it yesterday or the day before about Betsy DeVos advocating for the dissolution of the Department of Education in America. I've been saying she was going to do that since the day she was appointed. They keep calling me Cassandra. Again, literature Mm. teacher reference. Yep. The prophet who nobody believes. Yes. Right. That has been the goal, in my opinion, of the Oklahoma GOP for the last few decades. Because public schools are one of the few places where they don't get to mandate and legislate individual control or have not been able to. Mm. And it's also been infuriating to a lot of GOP members that they have to fund a public education when their students don't attend the school that they necessarily would be in the district to go to school. And that is where I think the actual root of the problem lies Mm. is in gerrymandered districts, especially in Republican states. Yeah. The way that Oklahoma City is chopped up, it's to neuter Democratic voting blocks. Well, that's, that's always that's always the case with Republican majority gerrymandering right. in, in states. And yes, this for our listeners, this is going to be another heavily politically focused episode <laughs> here because we've got a lot of things that have come up recently that I've been itching to hear Jessica's opinion on because uh, oh, and you're, kind of the, you're kind of the token blue haired feminist from Oklahoma. From Oklahoma, so I don't know if you would take offense to the term "bad bitch" because of the gendering, but uh, you're you're definitely the baddest bitch of my friends. I'm still carrying the bad motherfucker wallet. Yeah, motherfucker is a gender neutral pronoun. I will That's true. Know. So bad motherfucker. <laughs> we'll, we'll go for the gender neutral one. <laughs> Cheers. And I will also have you know that y'all mm. is a gender neutral pronoun. That's true as well. Absolutely. So progressive. I know. Y'all are some bad <laughs> motherfuckers. I'm saying. Exactly. <laughs> so. But where I was headed with that, and I swear I was headed somewhere with it. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Is how schools receive funding in this state is based off of property taxes. And property mm. taxes are levied according to the district in which a person lives and the zoning yeah. where their house is. So when you have a collection of 
high wealth concentration. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that you want that are being gerrymandered into your district. Yeah, and into your political party and voting right. block as well, uh -huh. yes. So those people are going to be paying a lot more for property taxes, and that property tax is going to be going toward the school that is in their neighborhood. Mm. Ergo, their students will have a larger per-pupil funding allotment, mm -hmm. and that is just how it is. And that means hiring more teachers and better qualified teachers. Better resources, better facilities, etc. Yes, exactly. And conversely, if you have a concentration of low-wealth area, that has been gerrymandered to defeat the power of its voting bloc. Mm. The property taxes assessed there are conversely affected by that, and so you have drastically less funding available per pupil for the school yes. to hire personnel and have facilities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, so, that, and that affects the long-term prospects of the students who attend those schools. And right. not to divert the topic onto the issues of things like systemic racism, but that's a very common policy across the United States where systemic racism leads to that economic segregation that causes that sort of disenfranchisement. Exactly. And that's and that's it's a very common policy all across the United States with property taxes being the source of the funding for the local schools. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that creates this catch-22 cycle of poverty and lack of opportunity. It goes back to redlining. And redlining yeah, exactly. was a racist practice when property was being sold or advertised back in the 1950s, 60s, mm. and 70s, was to zone certain areas as redlined because of the high concentration of people of color that lived there and yeah. devaluing their properties to make mm. it a concentration low wealth area, which has continued to this day, which results yeah. in systemically that perpetuating forward to underfunded schools. Because often when you have a high concentration of a low wealth area, you have a higher population than you yes. do in an area where you have higher property taxes and a lower per capita population. So you have more kids competing for less money as opposed to fewer kids competing for more money. Yes, and most crime is done out of desperation, not out of right. pathology. Right. So, you know, they create the situation. And at some point in the future, I've discussed with my other regular co-host, Jesse, back in Michigan, that we should really talk about the Southern strategy at some point and how the political parties kind of shifted their stance on racial issues. And that ties into the problems of systemic racism and quote-unquote controversy surrounding you know critical race theory and seems like that it was a response yeah. to economic recession it was a cultural scapegoating yeah exactly yeah. and the democrats the southern dixiecrats were absolutely the founders of the kkk that's a historical fact but you know which political party right now tacitly aligns with the KKK or or at least advocates the same kind of policies that are advocated by the KKK and it's certainly not the Democrats. I blame Benny Hinn and the wealth doctrine. I'll have to take a look at that when I do the research for that episode. What I mean is the reason that the Democratic Party and the Reconstruction Era South was advocating for social programs was to assuage the wrath of the poor whites that received mm. the brunt of the anger from the wealthy white landowners who had just lost their free labor, essentially, yeah. after the slaves were emancipated. Mm. And their anger and disenfranchisement 
at the ruling class was then diverted onto persons of color living in post-Reconstruction South. On top of the bigotry that they already faced. But that was exploited to get them to cooperate with that agenda. After the idea that wealth was somehow a meritocratic concept, and I think that that was really kind of like a... I want to say... It was like the 1950s. It was like the rise of consumerism in the United States when the uh, megachurch and the wealth doctrine Mm -hmm. began to really arise. Yeah, the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel. Jesse and I, it's kind of confusing because my other friend Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, and you, Jessica, nicknamed Jesse, uh, it gets a little bit confusing, but my my other co-host, Jesse, uh, has a lot to say about prosperity gospel. But that was at the point post-war when consumerism was a thing being hailed as patriotic. And Mm. so this American dream was seen as a sign of favor by God, which really kind of dovetailed with that nicely. And that was directly contrary to the ideas of social programs that would be Mm. outreach-oriented. And so it became kind of like a shifting of the economic ideals, I think, is what it was. Is this mm. whole bootstraps doctrine really fit in with the prosperity idea? And that was kind of exploited by the idea that, that people didn't want other people to take what they perceived that they had earned. Right. And this personal responsibility idea. Notice how that dovetailed with the civil rights era. If you're poor or you're, you're disenfranchised, it's because you're not putting in the effort not because you're caught in one of these catch-22 systems that we've already briefly described at the beginning of the episode. McCarthyism in the 1950s was a big part Mm. of that as well. And so anything that even smacked of anything that wasn't strict, unfettered capitalism was looked at askance. And that's where the Republican Party really began to switch gears. And I think... Yeah, and that anti-capitalist propaganda you know still informs so much of the discourse on the right wing these days you know i think a lot of it is latent racism oh absolutely because systemic racism has contributed to a lot of the economic inequality that we experience Mm. in this country and when people started pointing that out like in the 1960s and 1970s and said hey you know maybe we ought to do something about the systemic practices that have kept this in place that was when the shift in the parties began to happen because then it became more about status quo maintenance and that's where we're at now yeah the cia was targeting and investigating civil rights leaders like martin luther king and, and labeling him a communist yep you know because he wanted equality i mean he had this idea that everybody ought to be the same as you know some animals are more equal than others andrew exactly exactly and we discussed this in animal right. farm yes yeah you're talking to an English teacher, sorry. I, well, of course, you got to pepper the literary references throughout. But um, what I was thinking about the other day, you know, it's like so many of the people demanding unity in America, especially on the right. Okay, You, you have the right wing, which is largely, especially in, in recent weeks and months, and we'll, we'll discuss that uh, in particular coming up, but the political party that is targeting rights, voting rights, social liberties, is the one demanding that we unify. And what are we unifying under in their perspective? It's 
white Christian male patriarchy. Nationalism. And, and nationalism. Patriotic nationalism. There you go. Yes. And, you know, other Jesse and I just spent four episodes on the topic of white Christian nationalism in America. And maybe our, our listeners are, are tired of hearing about it, but it informs so much of what's going on right now and, and many of the things that I wanted to discuss with you as well, because of my friends, Jesse, other Jesse, it, that's, that's confusing. Boy Jesse, girl Jesse, I don't know. Jesse the male is also an atheist, and and you are a very outspoken atheist. And I have some Buddhist theories, but... Well, one way or the other. But both of you, I believe, came from very ultra-conservative uh, Christian families. And my mother was a snake handler, or one thing short of a snake handler, if you will. Uh, my mom was yeah. a radical evangelical Pentecostal, mm. and she went to church after church after church trying to find something that was... As radical as she was? Right. And yeah. as far as I know, she is still hunting. I have not asked recently. <laughs> oh my. Yeah. I, uh, I, for the sake of my mental health, had to estrange myself from that when I was about 14 years old. Mm. And uh, have developed my own relationship with uh, spirituality. Or yeah. I, I, I prefer to think of it as morality and ethics. I don't think that mm. those need to be spiritually focused. I think those are two separate things. Yeah, I don't think they should be tied to any sort of dogmatism. No, and I like a lot of Buddhist philosophy. Um, mm. My time living in China really illuminated a lot of the dogmatic problems that lie within Buddhism as well, especially mm. in the Western interpretations and misinterpretations of a lot of Buddhist thought. Um, so, yeah, I would say that I am definitely an atheist. Not even a shred of agnosticism exists within yeah. this breast. But I do... Um, really care about morality and ethics and i think that a lot of buddhist teaching is in line with what i resonate with but i wouldn't say that i drink any kind of kool-aid yeah i generally agree i think a lot of the buddhist philosophies as far as you know life is suffering don't increase the suffering of those around you i think that's right the most cogent like statement of objective morality as you can come to the dalai lama said that if you can't help other people at least don't hurt them Yes. So, you know, I steadfastly refuse to accept the idea that dogmatic religions have some sort of monopoly on morality. They absolutely do not. I think contrary, actually, mm. in a lot of cases, especially yeah. in our present zeitgeist, which mm. I'm sure dovetails with the conversations that you and Jesse were having about uh, Christian nationalism. Yeah. And both of us were kind of surprised at different aspects of the things that we had found during our research, you know, how the abortion issue took center stage because there in the South, they were failing to rally the evangelicals around resisting desegregation of their private religious institutions. Mm -hmm. So they, they shifted gears and put abortion as the linchpin issue for evangelical voters. I think... What it was is after the civil rights movement, a lot of the powers that be amongst the religious right political movement realized that a lot of people of color were deeply religious. 
Mm. And that that would be a way to win the black vote in a lot of ways or to woo the Hispanic vote. Mm-hmm. And to a lot of degrees, that has worked, especially with the older generation of persons of color. Yeah. Um, what I have noticed in conversations with my friends that are persons of color is that their parents are often a little bit more backwards in their views, uh, especially regarding the LGBTQ community or their views regarding abortion or same-sex marriage. Yeah. And unfortunately, now that Roe v. Wade was struck down, it's become clear that same-sex marriage and access to contraception are the things that they're attempting to target next. That's why the Republican Party became a single-issue party. Exactly. It was like a big tent coalition. And the problem is, is that Democrats have not chosen a single issue behind which to rally and to not give a damn about anything else. Yeah, you'd you'd think the existential threat of climate change would be something that we could rally behind. Or, you know, human equality or whatever, you know, (laughs) something, something that would unite the left. Mm. The right has executed a rather concerted attempt over the last several decades to create a single issue party that Mm. is actually a very big tent party and very diverse. And one thing that I certainly learned in my repatriation process to Oklahoma is that these opinions are not as pocketed as you think, and Mm -hmm. they're not held only by the people that you think hold them. There there are a lot of people that hold these views that really would startle you, and not Mm. just in Oklahoma, and any state in the nation. Um, And I think that that was one thing that Trump certainly did show a lot of liberals and progressives, or even moderate Democrats, is that we have been pushed further to the left by the pendulum swing to the right that has spread in large pockets throughout the country. Yeah. And that's just the truth. Not only do we have this zero-sum game of Democrat versus Republican, but the rhetoric that gets used on both sides, you know, the Republicans couch everything in moralistic black and white. Well, the Democrats, the left-wing party talks about the shades of gray. Look, everything exists on a spectrum, whether that's biological sex, your gender identity, your sexuality, all of these things exist as shades of gray that one entire half of the population refuses to acknowledge. Right. And that's kind of goes with what I was saying. I don't feel represented by the Democratic Party. And I certainly imagine that a lot of Republicans don't feel represented by the Republican Party. I imagine that a lot of moderate Republicans are probably pretty horrified by a lot of things that are happening. And I know that there are a lot of Republicans, not in Congress, but in the country, Mm. who are participating in activism to reform the GOP in a more moderate direction. I think we need to hear more from those people We do need to hear more from them. And we also need to hear more from the Democratic Party, which I believe has been divided into an old camp of Democratic Party, which is too moderate to get anything done at the moment, honestly. Yeah, because they don't have enough sway to resist the further push of the Overton window to the right and all they're trying to do is yeah mea culpa with the right well this is where we failed when Bernie Sanders called for that same big tent coalition single issue politics yeah when he 
conceded the election to Biden and the issue that he proposed was universal health care. And he yeah. said that that was because that was something we could get bipartisan support for and get stuff done if we would move as a single issue party like the Republicans have done with anti-abortion legislation. Mm. And if you think about politics like chess and think about it as a move instead of having a gut reaction to what has just happened, you realize that that is how we failed, is we failed to unite. And I think that part of why that is, is the Democratic Party is angry at each other and schismatic with the absorption of the progressive wing into the Democratic Party. I think that that is causing a lot more division than on the Republican side, where I think that more moderate Republicans are probably pretty horrified by the fringe left, but they go along with it because they are those single issue voters. Yeah. Well, and, and the real question is, what are they going to rally around next now that you know, Roe versus Wade has been repealed. That is a scary thought. And that's, right. that's a conversation I hope to have with my cousin later this week because he grew up in a heavily religious Baptist household and he's since become much more moderate in his worldview. And uh, I've, been, I've been itching to have the conversation about white Christian nationalism with him as well because he's very outspoken about it on his social media. Just a note on the white Christian nationalism topic is I'm assuming that you've been speaking with other men about this and you have mostly been focusing your conversation on that topic as it relates to men and how that is expressed across our nation. Well, we have found the statistics, which have been surprising and interesting, how it's a small majority, but it's a majority nonetheless, of the individuals who are accepting or outright advocating this white Christian nationalist movement are women. That's what I was going to say. And it was really pronounced in Oklahoma. Like, I was surprised to see how many women are absolutely on board with this. Yeah. And what's your take on that? I am flabbergasted, to be honest Mm. with you. So I know we discussed the idea of a liberal bubble. And Mm -hmm. I confess, I do live in a bit of a liberal bubble where most of the people that I interact with on a day-to-day basis probably either 75% agree with the things that I think or would not be diametrically opposed to me on issues that I think are hugely important. That, that's a fair statement. Well, on the other hand, the other side has become so extreme and so resistant to any sort of conversation or exposure to cognitive dissonance that like you said, you have for your own mental health and well-being. Kind of distanced myself. Estranged yourself from your mother. And I've mentioned several times how I, you know, I, I had to block my father on Facebook, at least from seeing his posts, because I just couldn't deal with the barrage of nonsense anymore. So, yes, we associate with people who share our ideals and some of our political beliefs, but at the same time, we've been actively distancing ourselves from the opposition because they've gotten to be so unreasonable. But I think it's important to also keep a finger on the pulse of that, to have Mm. a realistic understanding of where you are yeah, and where you live. And what was really strange for me was to see the people having celebrations when Roe versus Wade was overturned. There were protests, but there were counter-protests, and there were, like, parties. People were Mm. thrilled about it. And it was strange to see people posting on Facebook that they were happy about it. And that was what was weird to me. 
because that was so far away from how I felt. Right. So what do you think leads to that celebratory mindset? I think it is a crusading proselytization. Mm. And you were talking about Christian nationalism. And what I wanted to say was it's not really a coincidence that the KKK adopted the knight as mm -hmm. their archetype. If yeah. you look at the history of the Crusades and what they were, they were a series of very bloody ransackings and murders and rapes justified by the name of reclaiming the Holy Land or religious exploration. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the last crusade was when the Christian knights themselves mistakenly sacked Constantinople and stole the shit of Constantine's empire. Yeah. Um, that was just chaos. It was just unadulterated chaos and violence toward a perceived enemy. And a lot of this took place in the Middle East. A lot of this took place against foreign persons that they had had no previous contact with. And deemed as, <laughs> as lesser, you know, culturally or, or morally, yeah. As savages and heathens. And so I'm not really seeing how that imagery is not completely on brand. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> the know? same with the Trumpist flirtation with outright palingenetic, you know, nationalism or, you know, fascism right. under any other terminology. It's the idea that if you are correct, then all is justified. And then again, you have one party that says, this is what God wants. And anybody who doesn't want what we want is in league with the devil. And these people literally believe in the devil. Right. This is the biggest and most dangerous problem is because we have allowed belief to supplant thought yeah. in our national conversation. Because belief is by its definition irrational. It's visceral and emotional. It has no seat in the senses. And it can't yeah. be explained or justified. And it can't be compromised and it can't be met halfway on. That's the problem. Well, and I think there's also a distinction semantic as it is to talk about faith which i would agree fits that definition that you just mentioned and you know the idea of belief because you know i believe that the sun will come up you know tomorrow i but you know i believe that two plus two equals four i guess my distinction there would be believe versus think yeah so if i were to engage you in a conversation about politics i would ask you mm. questions what do you think about this or what do you think we should right. do about this not what do you believe right. God thinks that we should do about economic policy. Yeah. Well, obviously it's give money to the churches. That's not how we conduct that conversation. Yeah. And it is definitely against our separation of church and state ideals. Yeah. Like, it's a quibble that I often run into when I'm having discussions with believers. Oh, well, you know, scientists believe in the Big Bang Theory or biologists believe in the theory of evolution. That's because that's the rhetoric that they use. And I'm going to go English teacher on you yeah, go ahead. here real quick. Mm. The words that we use to talk about things mean a lot. And they show yeah. a lot about our attitude towards things. Exactly. And our willingness to be open or to compromise about the things that we hear. So if I were to say, oh, I hear you, but I think this versus, yeah. well, I believe that blah, blah, blah. And that's, that's a closed door for dialogue that does not invite any sort of compromise. 
Well, and the other aspect of that is the Orwellian newspeak redefinition of these words. You know, we we just went through four years of alternative facts administration. Right. And that has done huge damage to our public discourse. It's made everything hyperbole. Yeah. There's no room for measured speech anymore because it's not sensational enough. Mm. Yeah. I think that that is one of the reasons that Biden has picked up a lot of criticism from the conservative political base is that he is not sensational. He is kind of boring, but he does say salient things, but he's certainly not a showman. I think that showmanship in politics reached a new level of circus under the Trump administration. Uh, Well, a new depth, I would say. Well... (laughs) Bread and circuses. It was a gladiatorial performance. And I came up with an analogy about this to explain to my father why there were some things that we were not going to talk about. Mm. And I said, you know, I am done arguing about politics like people talk about football. Mm Because this is not a game. It's not a sport. It's not points to be scored. At the end of the day, the outcome of this like drastically affects people's real lives. And I'm not here to hawk at it like a spectator sport Mm -hmm. and fight about it for sport Mm -hmm. it's it's too serious i think yeah yeah i agree and there's been a lot of contention back home because my dad's a died in the wool mega stop the steal bordering on on QAnon level commitment to Trumpism and it's caused my mom a lot of grief to be sure she just he, she just puts in her noise canceling headphones and walks away when he starts one of his political spiels and uh, they, they recently went on vacation out west to Idaho and met up with my mom's brother and sister and uh, yeah they basically had to shut him down and say look we're not going to discuss politics with you it's just it's too unreasonable it's unbearable to get into this type of conversation because it's really the phenomenon of the echo chambers where, you know, I advocate over and over again on my social media. I don't know or really care who sees it. Maybe it's just intellectual virtue signaling. But, you know, I strive to get my news information from the least biased and most reputable institutions. I try to look at a cross section of viewpoints to see if I can split the difference to figure out what's actually going on. Right. Well, there is some room for editorialization for sure, because it's more the editorials that inform the public consciousness because they're more salacious and more hyperbolic, I guess you could say. But I have a pretty general idea of the state of things. And I try to look at news reports that present just the facts with minimal editorialization and then come to my own conclusion, because anytime you become infatuated or emotionally manipulated by the spin of a fact well yeah tucker carlson is a great example of this because when you get your quote-unquote news from a strictly editorial individual like tucker carlson you are subject to his opinion and whatever informs his opinion and if his opinion is not informed by the facts then your opinion is not informed by the facts I think that that is a really good example of the departure from news to infotainment. Mm. And I will say, conversely, 
Trevor Noah, Stephen Colbert, Seth Meyers would be good examples of that on the left. Yeah, and Bill Maher. Because I, I love those infotainment shows myself, so I could understand if I were... They certainly make the dumpster fire more palatable, yeah. That's what it is. That's what it is, is our world has become so difficult to grasp that people struggle to comprehend it without someone to tell it to them in a form mm. that they can deal with. And they yeah. choose... Satire. They choose the storyteller that they like the most. Mm-hmm. And whilst I think Tucker Carlson is completely insane, because yeah. I've seen clips of that man, and my goodness, he is insane, I can also see how that sort of programming is so dangerous, because it would make it really easy for someone to believe that those things are not hyperbole or to take them at face value, or extrapolate from them. Yeah, and then when they face consequences of that, they use some bullshit legal argument, like... It's for entertainment purposes only. Yeah, these, these are not meant to be statements of fact, which is the slimiest way for them to weasel out of responsibility for what that rhetoric influences people to do. But when you have a news cycle that is driven by people paying to view it... Yeah. You have sensationalism, people going after salacious whatnot. Yeah. And the algorithm-driven social media websites and, and how they feed that outrage machine is just as destructive, if not more, for reinforcing these echo chambers. It discourages intellectual dialogue. It really does. Well, and that's the thing I was getting at earlier. This idea of the right wing is, is totally black and white. They, they refuse to engage in intellectual dialogue because... To do so undermines their strict black and white, right and wrong, God versus the devil, dichotomous worldview. You know, I I will say a lot of my friends that 10 years ago would have said that they were Republican mm. voted Libertarian or for Kanye when it came to the Trump question. Mm. And they feel rather disenfranchised by this whole situation. Yeah. Those folks aren't the ones I think you're talking about. No, but the question is, are they too far gone on the single issues and, and the demonization of the left to buckle down and vote opposite party? I think so. And I don't think in the case of Congress, it's that each and every one of them is that way. Mm. I think a lot of them feel that they want to hang on to power. And that yeah. they want to maintain, you know, their position. And I think that that has a lot to do with it. I think that a lot of Congress thinks that Trump is going to do something in 2024. If he does not, I think that would be really, really great for our country. Because then I think he would lose his power stranglehold over the Republican Party. And they might see a return to some moderate sense. I I I have to I have to respectfully disagree there because he has garnered so much influence in grassroots areas. You know, we've seen the rise of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and and a lot of these oh, other Oh, she is a piece of work, isn't she? She's the most uh vocal or the most well-known example, but there are plenty of these grassroots level local and state politicians who had been endorsed by Trump or used the same rhetoric as Trump that have gotten elected and are now subverting state voting laws, making it more difficult for minorities to vote. And and heard recently that in a couple of the states, what they've done is given these Trumpist 
individuals control over the electoral vote. So regardless of what the actual election results are in the popular election in the states, they can just, they've given them more rights to knock down the popular vote and institute whatever electoral vote they as individuals want the state to, Where was to this? rally behind. I confess that I heard this in a podcast. It was a uh, a podcast with a guy who is a lawyer and his, his podcast is totally focused on legal issues and he did not cite specifically which state that was so i would have to look it up okay but it's just one of the many things that demonstrates how even though trump might be out of power right now his influence or his rhetoric is still effectively being used by many republicans on the state level which is is only perpetuating trumpism as the rallying cry of the republican party Oh, yes. I agree. What I was saying is that in 2024, he has been talking about running again in 2024. If he does, and if he gets his ass handed to him, I think that that would end a lot of this bullshit. I wish that that would happen. Mm. If that happens in the primaries, that would be super cool if some of the Republicans that have been more moderate historically would grow a spine. They had four years to do that. And do something about, come get your boy, John Kerry. John Kerry, come get your boy. I'm talking to the Republicans that have historically been able to see reason. It would be great if they could grow some spines and... It would be great. Check that mess, but I don't think they will. Yeah, well, that's my point. I think it's very optimistic to think that, but I can't help but be pessimistic when it comes to the likelihood of that actually happening. And that's the other issue, I think, as well, with the success of the overturn of Roe v. Wade and these other Christian right agendas going on. I'm actually more worried that we're going to see not a move back towards more moderate Republican candidates, but a move towards more extreme religious candidates. They've been emboldened. Who feel validated and emboldened, like you just said, by the quote-unquote progress that has been made. I mean, I can always hope that people grow a conscience, can't I? We can always hope, I but mean, uh, I, may hope I in reserve, one hand is shit in the other and see which fills up faster. May, may I reserve the right to just at least naively hope? Yeah, absolutely, because okay. I, I try to maintain that as well. But I would uh, love it if some of the more moderate Republicans would wake up when they see the kind of stuff that's happening and be like, wow, this is awful. Maybe this is too much. Maybe this is the thing that we're not okay with. Maybe this is the thing that we don't want to do. I will say that I have at least heard that there's been a growth in that demographic in response to the January 6th hearings that have been going on. The the few on the right who have actually taken the time to watch them or to... Libertarians would be a good faction to potentially get on board with this. Is that that demographic? The libertarians are scary in their own right. I'm not saying you have to hang out with them. I'm just saying that we need to True. get people voting in the same way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get you. And that's what I mean by big tent coalition politics. That is why the left needs to get their shit together. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm saying is that unity is something that we need to be focusing on if we want mm. to be able to stand up against this. Yeah, well, my biggest concern with Trump running again in 2024 is that He did receive the second highest number of votes in American history. And we'll see whether or not the Dems, you know, still feel motivated to get out during the midterm elections and keep this pressure 
and resistance against what's going on right now uh, well, moving. in my opinion, we were talking about the repeal of Roe v. Wade. Yeah. I think that in a large part, the lack of cohesive voting that would have prevented that from happening can be looked at as a failure of intersectional feminism. So go ahead, expand on that for us. Okay. What I mean by intersectional feminism is I mean inclusive feminism that includes Mm. women of color, that includes Mm -hmm. trans women, that Mm. includes women of differing finely tuned viewpoints and a big tent idea. And a lot of women within the Democratic Party are really racist. I'm I'm looking at suffragette feminism, like from the early part of the feminist movement. A lot of those women had been slaveholders and were definitely segregationists. I mean, that's a thing. And I'm sure they took umbrage to the fact that, you know, the blacks were given the right to votes before women were. They didn't want black women marching with them for the vote. Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Yeah. For real. Like... That's what I mean by intersectional feminism. But that requires that we put aside racism. That requires that we put aside transphobia. I think we've made more strides to overcoming racial bigotry than we have towards, you know, LGBTQ and especially trans bigotry at this point. And it's interesting because in the past, you know, I didn't really have an opinion one way or the other on trans individuals. And starting a couple years ago, there were a few uh, YouTube channels, and most of them were philosophy-based YouTube channels um, and political commentary YouTube channels. But two of those YouTube personalities transitioned over the course of the lifespan of their channel and have spoken a lot about their personal experience with you know gender identity and all these other things. And like I said, I, I had kind of a neutral opinion, but now I have a much more, you know, proactive and supportive opinion about that. And I think in many ways, you know, the people who hold various bigotries one way or the other do so out of ignorance and a lack of personal experience with those people who they discriminate against. Exactly, exactly. And I think a lot of women vote against their own self-interests when they vote according to their bigotry against women of other types. Yeah. Or other social classes or other positions mm-hmm. in society. Because they, they fall into the umbrella of, of the gendered aspect of those politics. Right. And a lot of white women that fall into the Christian nationalist camp politically mm. do so because of single issue voting. And they vote yep. against their own self-interest and against the interests of other women. That's my opinion, I mean, and that would probably get me hollered at in a feminist chat room by not embracing women of other political beliefs. Yeah, or your willingness to embrace trans women or women of color, so... You know... What can you do? And that becomes a political issue as well, because there was a a divide at the Women's March, where there was a pro-life women's group that wanted to join the Women's March, and a lot of women took issue with it. And then there was this big argument about whether pro-life women ought to be included in a feminist to-do. Well, I can understand why that would be a controversy. And this is all an excellent example of the schismatic division within the left that 
right. kind of prevents us from unifying against the growing issue of, of you know. Because both of these groups of women are like pro-women, pro-business, pro-women's issues, except yeah. that one issue. Mm. And then there's that lack of inclusion there. And honestly, I would find it hard put to put that argument to rest. Yeah. I no, I agree. That's that's very contentious. I wouldn't have an issue with them taking part in a march, but I would need to write an academic paper about it. Right. <laughs> like, I try to be... Well, you know, organize it like a parade where you have one group, you know, going at one part right, of the parade right. and then you have the next group together, you know, they're still participating, but they're... That's a pretty strong ideological difference, yeah. but I still you know, welcome them as women to that big tent for for women's advancement. Right, because, you know, their perspective is that, you know, their idea about feminism or, or the feminine identity might be more focused on maternal care and things like that. They, you know, that's what they might strongly feel is their connection to the idea of, of feminism, the right for them to choose to want to embrace that expectation versus the the right to want to defy that expectation. In Oklahoma, there are a lot of pro-life feminists, and I have connected with some of them over the idea that better sex education should be in place, that well, birth control should be more readily available and destigmatized, mm-hmm. that women's health care should be more readily available, that girls should understand their options, that rape laws should be more strictly enforced. Mm-hmm. And that up until the point, and some pro-life feminists even say that they are okay with like medical abortion, like pill abortion, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't be okay with a surgical procedure. Well, and I saw the statistics that 92% of abortions happen in, I think it was like the first nine weeks or so. Right. When you've just found out you're pregnant. Yeah. The issues of quote unquote partial birth abortions that were obviously more gruesome. That's the most sensationalist example available. And that's what the Christian right used to rally everyone around the issue. That is what they've made the standard assumption. Yes, ex- exactly. That becomes the standard assumption. Yeah. Is that it's not, you know, a barely formed blastocyte. It's a miniature human being or a preemie baby. And they often try to paint it as though it's a wanton hussy just using abortion as a yeah. form of birth control, which is also statistically not the case. Exactly. Statistically, most women seeking but, abortions already have children but again, and don't can't afford any more. Jesse, Jesse, I keep telling you. Those are the shades of gray that that one entire party refuses to engage with. Right. You're preaching to the choir here, dude. No, I know, but we're we're both kind of preaching to the the listeners at this point. So I have a story to tell you if you want to hear about it. Sure, go ahead. So for the people who are listening, I am 38 and a half years old. I do not have any children. Um, I do not wish to have any children. And for the last 10, 11 years, I have had a copper IUD, the Paragard IUD, which is one of the forms of birth control that some of the more extreme legislations have been considering banning going forward. I think because it does something that they construe to be abortive as far as egg implantation. It's a very fine striation of meaning, but anyhow. Yeah. It means whatever they want it to mean to get their legislation passed. But yes, go ahead. Right. It's one of the forms considering being prohibited. So 
I'm running towards the end of the efficacy of mine. If I were to get another one, that would put me at 48 when that one ran out, or 49. And I'm not sure if I would be through menopause by then, so then I'd have to get another one, and that would be a pain in the butt. Because they do kind of hurt when you take them out and put them in. So then I thought about a tubal ligation, and I saw that that was actually covered by the family planning thing for low-income folks in my state, which as a uh, self-employed musician, I count as uh, because of my tax filings. So I thought, hey, you know, I'll look into that. So I have been trying to do that in Oklahoma, and my goodness, it has been interesting. So I'm sure it has been for you and for women in, in other states that have now had similar laws or, or policies uh, right. after the dissolution of Roe v. Wade. So go, go ahead, continue your story for us here. So my logic is that I don't wish to have a child. Prior to this legislation, if for some reason my IUD, which is a 99.6% effective rate, failed because it's toward the end of its efficacy, I might worry, and I did become pregnant, I really do not want to have a baby. Like super, super do not want to have a baby. And the odds that I would are not real good anyway, but just 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 go with me on this. So uh, just to make double sure, because I like to do that, I thought, okay, well, let's go ahead and uh, proceed and try to figure out how to do this. So there's no information on how to do this on um, the state website. Planned Parenthood couldn't really help me. They have been shut down in this state. That's where I've been going for the last 15 years for my care just for annual care or just health maintenance, birth control, things like that. And it was always sliding scale for low-income people. So I was able to afford to have really good OBGYN care for not a whole lot of money. So I was able to actually go to the doctor and get care, which is something that we're going to have a problem with. And our listeners who tuned in to the White Christian Nationalist episode will recall that when we discussed Planned Parenthood, that Abortions are really a, a very, very small minority of the services that they provide. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's, it's a shame that they've been shut down in Oklahoma there because of being you know strongly associated with abortion. Go ahead. Many times when I would go there throughout the years to get my birth control or have an annual exam or whatnot, there would be protesters outside the clinic. And they would be showing graphic photos to me and yelling things at me. And I would just yell back, I'm here for a pap smear or whatever it was to make them What's understand. What's that? We've never had like, sex yet. We don't know what you're talking about. You know. And what is really alarming is without insurance and a primary care provider, you can go there and just have an annual exam. You can't do that now that they're gone. There's no way to do that. Sooner care is, I guess, the only way to do it without paying full cost at a doctor. So I um, had to call. I spent probably three hours on the phone just chasing down who to talk to and who would even do this. And honestly, if I hadn't spent 10 years as a paralegal, I never would have found it out. But I Mm -hmm. wound up at the clinic down at the hospital associated with the college and they do it, but you have to have several consultations and be pre-approved by a surgical board. They have to approve you as a candidate for a tubal ligation procedure. Now, forgive my ignorance, but is that you know what we colloquially call having your tubes tied? 
they actually cut and remove a portion right. of your uh, fallopian tube, and having right. it removed as opposed to uh, just tied, cauterized. Well, they never like tied it, but they would suture it or cauterize it. But that reduces the risk of cancer right. is having it by having okay. it removed. So okay. that would it's it's a laparoscopic minimally invasive procedure. It's like an in and out patient surgery. So mm. it's not a debilitating thing at all. Um, but anyway, so I had to get on a waiting list for an appointment just for them to talk to me to see if they mm -hmm. would even approve me to talk about the surgery. And I am, like I said, I'm 38 and a half years old and definitely child free. But I have talked to a lot of younger women and I've had some women like under the age of 25 that haven't had kids be denied for this in the state or women that haven't had kids even when they're 30 or they've been asked to have their husband sign a consent form. And like when I went, they asked me if I had any intimate partner and if I needed to have their consent for me to do this. Well, I suppose that given the area that you live in, there's, you know, expectation of patriarchal control of the family in that sense. But yeah. But for real, though. Yeah, like, for real. And I've spoken to some of the men that I know that have had vasectomies, and they were not asked questions like that. No, of course not. No. So anyway, I get my appointment and I go, but I had to find a place to go. It, it was amazing to me how few places in Oklahoma deal with women's health that is not reproductive, mm. that is not geared toward childbirth. Um, right. There are like maybe two clinics in the state that even do this surgery. <sighs> yeah. So anyway... That's been a whole adventure, and uh, I was able to get the uh, state insurance to approve it, so hopefully I will be able to get scheduled in the next month or so. I will let you know how that goes, but the red tape that I've already had to deal with has been pretty profound. Well, and the sad reality is that all that effort might be for naught because, you know, with the other aspects of their pro-life agenda that they're pursuing, you know, if they go ahead and push to restrict access to IUDs or birth control, then they might just throw out your appointment. You know, that's kind of why I wanted to move on this sooner rather than later. Yeah, that's a good point. And I'm, I'm sure you would, I'm sure you would advocate for any other women listening to, to do the same if this is something that they're considering. I would say that if you live in a state where you think that your reproductive rights may be in question, that you take whatever measures you need to do to ensure that you have birth control for yourself, whether it be a long-term device or a permanent procedure or just securing a, a supply of your favorite pill or whatever it is that you take in case there would be some supply chain disruptions. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a tragedy that all this stuff is going on right now. And... Like I said, I was definitely keen to hear your opinions about the situation. Not not just because I would probably generally agree with all of them, but uh, the fact that I know that as a woman, you are specifically at risk or targeted by these legislations. And as a staunch feminist, I know you'd have very interesting and, and cogent arguments to make about the situation. Well, I hope so. Honestly, 
I am not so much concerned about myself. Uh, like right. I said, at my age, my fertility is declining anyway. Thank goodness. I, I'm looking forward to menopause. It will be wonderful. Um, but I am more concerned about young women, uh, especially those who are coming up now in high school who are not receiving any sort of sex education that is geared towards prevention or health or their own protection. And, and really, statistically speaking, sex education and access to birth control are proven again and again to be the most effective way to reduce the number of abortions. But again, those are the fine points and statistics and facts that just don't get through to the other side because they refuse to acknowledge. If they made me queen, they ought to teach prevention and protection and health class in high school. And I think that there ought to be a simple and easily understandable over-the-counter birth control available. Mm. If we are going to have the disastrous healthcare system that we have, that requires so many hoops to be jumped through to even receive an appointment for a consultation to mm. go to a pharmacy to get your birth control pills. A lot of women, especially young women, especially teenage girls or low-income women, don't have the access to do that. Or to travel to another state to find services that would allow them to do those things. Right. Well, mercifully, birth control has not been discussed in a broad sense yet only, only certain forms of birth control mm. but i mean that's still not good but well the ultimate birth control is abstinence so maybe you know there should well, be a nationwide push for women's abstinence lysistrata until this shit gets sorted out yeah go ahead so aristophanes actually wrote an excellent play called lysistrata Mm. where the women of Athens went on sexual strike to end a war. Mm. And it worked. Yeah, there you go. Sexual abstinence revolution seems like a good peaceful protest. Also, women are people. Yeah, well, and, who would have guessed? You know, and men are people, and we're both mm. just kind of here on this planet doing our thing. And well, uh, it would be awesome if we could understand each other and work together to make it not suck. It's kind of my thought. Yeah, and I've had my girlfriend ask me why I'm so upset about the whole abortion thing. It's like, you're a man and you're not even living in America. Why do you care? It's like, well, because I, I know and respect and love many women who are living in America, who this does affect very directly. And I would be failing in my duty to advocate for the continuation of their civil liberties and, and rights to not have an opinion about this and talk about this stuff and and try to at least spread some information or uh, strongly held opinions to reflect why this is such a pressing issue in America right now. Okay, so let's talk about how this affects men, shall we? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Firstly, I would say I think it gives you cognitive dissonance mm. because... As an American, I think that you have an internalized concept of what you think freedom, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and autonomy means. Mm. And I think those are both interpreted differently on both sides of the spectrum, but I digress. Go but ahead. I think that you have a pretty good idea of what you think that is. Mm. And I also think that you do view women as persons like yourself. Mm. And so you can empathize 
with what it would feel like to suddenly be treated in such a way. And that is about a third as angry as I am. Yeah. Well, <laughs> trust me. I know. <laughs> That's why but, I was hoping to get you on a conversation here. But that is your ability to empathize. Mm. And that is kind of a good basis for us to be having this conversation because I know that you are on the same page as me, which mm. is why I feel like I can open up and really talk about how I'm feeling about this. Yeah. Because I know that we have that common ground. And here's the thing. Men voted for women to get the vote. Yep. That's a great point. So y'all are our allies. And it should be as, as fellow human beings. There right. shouldn't be any question. And your position as a white man is something that you need to acknowledge. And it is also something that you need to use for the good of other people, not yourself. Mm. To understand that you have privilege and be like, hey, maybe I can use that privilege to bring awareness to some issues or to let other people talk and give them that platform. Exactly. And look, you know, this platform is is smaller than a shoebox. You know, we don't we don't reach too many people with our platform here, but the the men who do have platforms should be doing the same thing. Every person has a platform. Every person mm. has people that they know and people that they talk to. Right. Uh, but anyway, so let me let me go on with how this affects men. Yes, go ahead. So there is legislation that specifically does affect men on the books in this state and in Texas. If, for example, you had a lady friend that you had been sleeping with and you had gotten her pregnant, or y'all had gotten y'all selves pregnant and she was pregnant, and y'all had discussed it and decided that that was not something that was in the cards for you, maybe her birth control failed, maybe something happened, maybe the condom broke, I don't know. Maybe you're married, maybe you've already got three kids and she forgot her pill because she was breastfeeding or something. I don't know. But she's pregnant. If you could be found assisting her physically or financially across state lines to obtain an abortion or to obtain an abortion in any way, you could mm -hmm. be sued for $10,000 by any person. Yeah, this bounty issue that's going on. Any person. Yeah. And so that is the problem. We do have male allies who are super down to be brothers and help us out. But then this happens. And I think yeah. that that is why this legislation was put in place is because the natural impulse of men to care for the women that they love is a thing. Mm. And this is how they exploited it. <sighs> Sadistic. If you remember The Handmaid's Tale, mm. it was the lower class men that also suffered under that system. Yep. Well, and again, the issues of failures of contraception, the issues of pregnancies resulting from rape or incest, the issues of life-threatening health complications for the mother, all of these things are the reason why abortions were made legally accessible in the first place. Another way that this affects men yeah. is consider Joe Average 
who is working a menial job for which mm-hmm. he is paid not enough, and he's already got like three kids and a wife who also works, and she's pregnant. That's another kid. That is a sentence for him as well. There is no mitigation of that. Mm-hmm. And childcare tax credits surely smack of socialism. I imagine that will be over. Yeah, that's one of the questions I plan to ask my cousin, and I'm I also asked you earlier. Is you know what what do we think is the next step, the next thing they're going to go after, and same sex marriage is my opinion. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that too. But you you touched on the issue of the child tax credits, and you know those have been targeted by the right wing for a long time. So now you know you're you're forcing women to give birth, and then also potentially removing the child tax credits. You're punishing poverty. Yeah. How has like ninety percent of everything that the right wing been doing over the last twenty years not been criminalizing or punishing poverty? You know. This is about the control of women. That's what we were just discussing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. See, we did have a point. We did come back to it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Our first hour of conversation has certainly flown by pretty quickly here. It's so nice to catch up with you, Andrew. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we've talked about some heavy stuff already. Are there any other particular aspects of the things going on in the U.S. right now as far as Christian nationalism or the Supreme Court or education that uh, you'd like to share with us? Huh. You mentioned the Supreme Court. Mm. I will say that I found the timing of this Roe v. Wade decision to be incredibly interesting. Mm-hmm. They did it before Justice Brown Jackson was able to vote. Before mm. she was confirmed. Of course. It wouldn't have changed anything given the political alignment, right? But still, yes, that's true. Yeah, that was interesting to me. What else? Let me think. I also found it interesting that these Supreme Court justices also shut down Trump's uh, election fraud bullshit when they were ideally placed to port him, and I think they did so because if they had gotten behind that illegitimate election fraud nonsense then they might have stood to lose their positions and then could not follow through on peeling roe v wade or aborting roe v wade oh absolutely (laughs) anyway so Mm. i have questions for you sure what is it like living in china with the tensions between china russia and the u.s right now Honestly, I haven't really seen too much going on over here. I know the U.S., Russia, and Ukraine thing has been an ongoing issue ever since Putin decided he wanted to be a 20th century dictator. But, uh, I mean, you lived here in China, so you understand the kind of ethnic nationalism that they have here in China. You know, it's, it's, you know, Han Chinese, number one, and they are strategic allies with Russia, but... So they... They're very much live and let live and not getting involved in it. But they're trade allies with the U.S., who is a big decision-making member in NATO. Right. So that's the issue. I haven't really heard much about if it's causing issues, but yeah. NATO has forbidden China to provide weapons to Russia. So far, Xi Jinping is abiding by that. I think he's watching to see what happens... 
yeah. I don't think he wants to get involved. I think he's watching to see what happens so he can decide how to move on territories that don't belong to him. Yeah, well, that's also a possibility in the future as well, but something that's much more difficult to discuss here in China. But yeah, like I think China's trying to kind of keep its distance from the whole Russia thing, and I think they would prefer not to get involved one way or the other, because either through their ethnic identity or NATO issues or, you know, for future strategic plans that that they have for other unnamed territories. But uh, yeah, I haven't seen too much fallout, too much animosity over here towards foreigners at this point. Have you experienced any sort of inflation or price fluctuation or anything like that? Not not a whole lot. I mean, there's been a couple things that have jumped up in price by one or two kwai, but not, not so widespread. Have you had supply chain issues? It's hard for me to say. We've had lots of issues with the high cost of shipping, sending out the products for my boss's orders. But uh, other than that, I, as far as import-export, there's a whole lot of that stuff that I don't really pay attention to too much while living over here. Because in, in many ways, I feel it's, it's not my place to really have a stance to, to hold on all of that. Has it affected your visa application process or anything like that? No, thankfully, that all got settled recently. I had to renew the work permit, and that all went through. It's, it's more the direct business relationship between my boss and the factory that's potentially an issue with my visa status over here. Although I'm still on very good terms with the factory owner and the managers there, they are at least willing to separate the issues that they have with my boss and my cooperation with their productions over there. So thankfully, that's not too much of a problem right now, but I feel like there's always a potential for that (laughs) in the future. But uh, recently, uh, you've also been kind of expanding uh, your own self-employment there in Oklahoma. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, um... I have been teaching a lot more lessons. Mm-hmm. That's that's really it. Um, I got three new learner harps that I'm trying to rent out and trying to get some mm-hmm. students. Been teaching piano lessons and stuff like that, but that's not sure. that's not interesting enough for a podcast. So. <laughs> well, I did have at least one question about the uh, the smaller ones. They're called harpsicles. Is that correct? Or yeah, yeah. Okay. Now they are smaller, obviously, than your full size harp. I was wondering, do they have fewer strings? They have 26 strings, yeah. Okay, and your full-size harp has? My full-size harp has 47. Okay, so they got roughly half the number of strings. So I was curious, the little attention adjusters or... The levers at the top? The levers, yeah, on the top. Do those help make up for the lack of the full range of strings by changing the tone on each individual string? Okay, so... I'm just curious about how they function. The levers um, Mm. change the pitch by half a step, so it will make it like go from like an F to an F sharp, or a C to a C sharp, or an E flat to an E natural. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Those are only a one-way action, as opposed to Mm -hmm. my pedal harp that has a two-way action, which is the pedal Mm -hmm. on the bass that has the uh, top, middle, and lower position for flat, natural, and sharp. And that controls Ah. each of the C's or F's or whatever's on the entire Mm -hmm. harp when you do that. Okay. I was curious about that. And, you know, I saw your unboxing stream that you did there. 
I made a video, uh, another video about different types of harps and why they are cool, and that sure. is where I demonstrated the harp sickles and my new mariachi harp and my uh, my concert grand as well. I will be receiving my second concert grand at the end of the year, and I'm really excited to share that with you. Wow. Sounds really cool. Supply chain issues have slowed that down quite a bit as well, but I'm still waiting yeah. for it. It's a um, Salvi Rainbow, and I actually got the semi-grand model with the extended bass soundboard on it, so I'm excited to get it. Nice, nice. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wanted to kind of, after we touched on the more political issues to just kind of chat a little bit about the things that we're doing in our daily lives that aren't directly influenced by all the political garbage fire that's going on right now and and how we're coping with the issues in many ways. (laughs) I absolutely agree. I will tell you, I did think of something that you might find interesting for the Mm -hmm. podcast as one way in which I have been working that is new for me and probably new for you to hear about. Mm-hmm. I have been doing a lot of work with the Mariachi Orgullo de las Americas. Okay. Uh, that is the largest mariachi orchestra in the tri-state region. Okay. Um, their director told me that they played 200 gigs last year. Aladdin. Wow. Yeah. And um, they're fantastic. It's an orchestra of about 30 members total. And depending on the gig or what it is... Uh, we'll have anywhere from about 6 to 15 people show up. And I had no idea the incredibly rich and varied tradition that Harp has with the mariachi. Yeah, I, I confess that I have no idea how the Harp would be integrated into mariachi music it either. It absolutely does. Hmm. Um, there was even a style of Harp invented in Jalisco, Mexico, the Jaliscan Harp. That is particularly popular with mariachi orchestras. And in the beginning day of the mariachi orchestra, the harp actually served as the bass and percussion instrument. Sure. Before the widespread popularity of the guitarron, which is like the big uh, bowed back giant bass guitar looking thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it's hugely popular. Also in Argentina, Venezuela, and in Chile, and Paraguay. Okay. And in Paraguay, they have a different style of harp altogether that looks a little bit different and is played differently. But in different South American countries, they even have like cross-strung harps and wire-strung harps and all kinds of crazy things. So it's been a really fun educational opportunity for me to do kind of a deep dive into that style of music and learn. And I have been having a great time. I've been working with them, well... Since October, so okay. about about nine months now, mm-hmm. uh, to the point that I even committed and bought myself a mariachi harp. Nice. Uh, the Serana 34, and that's another one that you'll see in my video uh, I did the demonstration on. And that is kind of a copy of the Jaliscan harp with some of the hybrid characteristics of the Paraguayan harp. And okay. I have been teaching myself uh, the technique and watching different videos and have corresponded with some other harpists who specialize in that style to teach me, but that's what I've been up to. Oh, very cool, very yeah. cool. You know, I'd asked about the music stuff you've been doing recently because uh, I think the, the most of our, our outreach is probably centered in the Midwest where most of the friends and family that are more likely to tune into the podcast uh, are, are living in. But uh, Justin, my original co-host, 
He likes to use the podcast to talk about his small business venture and the things that he's doing for that as well to, you know, spread awareness and things like that. So wanted to, to share the same opportunity here with Absolutely, you. Absolutely, for sure. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, so I think uh, it's been great catching up, and I'm glad that we could touch on some lighter subjects here uh, during the episode, because we did talk about some pretty heavy stuff, politically speaking, That's earlier. That's just real life. It is. It is, definitely. Why don't we try to think about how to end this on a positive note? What are some things that we would like to see or some things that we hope are coming? Well, like I said, I hope that during the midterms, we see more support for Democratic state candidates and that, uh, you know, ideally in the future, I think an official third party to get rid of the zero-sum game of American politics would be a move in the right direction. Definitely term limits for Congress and a laundry list of, of other things, getting the financial influences out of the government with campaign finance reform but uh i think if we continue talking about the things that need to change it's gonna just lead us back down the rabbit hole of negativity you know as long as we're talking about a little bit of hope Mm. i certainly hope that the present outrage will fuel turnout for the midterms yes i really really do i hope that this has hit enough people where it hurts to make them vote yeah (laughs) you know and it's amazing to me how many people will express dissatisfaction with the state of things but will not vote and i think that the disconnect is that people don't understand that the voting that they do at local levels impacts national policy and it certainly does um and in many ways more so than the big ticket presidential elections you know oh absolutely Because this whole thing with Roe v. Wade has really illustrated how little power the president has. Mm. He was powerless against the Supreme Court to do this. Yep. Well, but it was also kind of the disenfranchisement and the the complacency from 2016 that allowed Trump to get in and and appoint three Supreme Court justices. Right. Yeah. So both are important, but a lot of the smaller ticket grassroots local and state elections are very important to resisting. That's how we choose our representatives that go to Congress and that gridlock the president or don't gridlock the president or vote to break ties or don't vote to break ties. That is how we get our representation. And as an Oklahoman, seeing how our congressional delegation comported himself this past Mm -hmm. week made me feel great outrage because I recently voted him out. I was not successful. Right. But but you made the effort. I certainly did try. Mm -hmm. You know, and at least I can say that and I certainly wish that more people would put forth the effort to put our ballot where our outrage is. Yep. And And I think we can be hopeful that the outrage, that the fallout of this decision-making will galvanize Democrat voters to be more politically active. Because I think a lot of the things that have been going on has been an issue of complacency. You know, we had achieved marriage equality 
And we'd achieved a number of these other, you know, milestones in social progress and equality. And we got content in the idea that, you know, now that those hard fought battles had been won, that we could relax, you know. Well, I'm going to say something that you're probably not going to like. It is our fault. Yeah. The elder millennials. Um, we rested on our laurels. Mm-hmm. We thought that we had accomplished something or we became disenfranchised and we stopped voting. The boomers are voting. Yeah. They continue to. Yeah. Our generation is the one that dropped the ball. That's true in that sense. And I'm not saying you and I personally, because I know that if you were in the States, you would be voting and I am voting. Mm. But it's the millennial generation that has stopped voting. And I think that a lot of us feel that our votes don't matter because I certainly feel that way. I feel that I'm not represented, but I am perverse enough to keep doing it anyway because I guess I'm an elder millennial and I have enough Gen X in me to be a little bit punk rock. Right. <laughs> but I, I see a lot of younger people being really disillusioned with the system and not believing that it can change for them. And I hope that they have the impetus for a revolution, but what does give me hope is Gen Z, and those are the Mm -hmm. kids that I was happy enough to teach when I was teaching high school. And those kids are smart, and they are mad. They are pissed off, because they had elder millennial teachers telling them that things used to be different. Yeah, and they're seeing how these social liberties and issues have now come back to the forefront. Right. And yeah, it's actually a great way to kind of bring it full circle and refocusing on the importance of of education. Right. See, millennials unfortunately took our activism online. Yeah. Which is where it ceases to be formative and begins to be performative. Ah, that's a great way to describe it. We're we're pushing for uh Virtue signaling rather than right. virtuous action. We're policing action. each other. Yeah. We're balkanizing the Democratic Party rather than actually putting our feet on the ground and moving for social change. And I hope that Gen Z is disgusted enough with us to do something different. Yeah. Well, and again, you know, having teachers and having proper education and helping Gen Z to understand not only the history of the fight for these social values and and social rights, that's very important to continue the legacy of progressivism. And you know who is the most angry right now? Who's that? Boomer women. Yeah. Boomer women are losing their shit right now over Roe v. Wade overturn. Yeah, because they're the ones who fought to get it established in the first place. They're very angry with my generation right now. Yep. And they have they have reasons to be. Yeah. Either that or if they've come full circle and are now voting against the very thing they protested for. Yeah. Well, they always say people get more conservative as they get older. And that is the case in some cases. Yeah. yeah. That's the That's issue. That's true. Yeah. So. so let's hope that the kids do better than we did. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the best thing to hope for. But I'm going to still be out there marching and fighting and arguing for their right to have something better. Absolutely. 100%. Because the truth of it is, 
is they are the next boots on the ground generation, but our generation is the next political generation. Yep. Yep. Right now, we are complaining about the people in charge, but here in about 10 years, we'll be running for office. Yeah. Right. And hopefully those strong feelings and and stronger opinions will continue to to solidify into actual political action and exactly. we can follow through on and maybe uh course correct our apathy from our elder millennial voting days into into actual actionable change right exactly so yeah that's i'd say those are all great reasons to be to be hopeful and optimistic here absolutely all right well thanks again for joining me it's been a pleasure jesse and i think this will bring another episode of unheard voices to a close so this has been andrew Minier and jessica tate all right well thanks again for joining me and uh for our listeners we'll talk at you again soon